Craig Hoffman. Welcome into the Hoffman Show here on HoffmanShow.com. Today, we talk to Tom Haverstroh and get much, much smarter about basketball. He tends to do that kind of thing. And then the other guest today is Mark Fainaruwada, ESPN's amazing investigative reporter, part of a duo with his brother who has led the way in terms of reporting on concussion research in the NFL. Their latest report is damning, to say the least, to the NFL and how they apparently tried to sway science. You can't do that. That's not okay. Especially when you're talking about the heads of players, some of whom have quite literally killed themselves as a result of their brain injuries. So we'll talk about that with Mark Fainaruwada coming up in about half an hour. However, start with last night's Game 4s. The Raptors even up their series, the Eastern Conference Finals, with the Cavaliers. And Well, the last time I did a podcast and had Mark Kessischer on, and Kesty and I were saying, yeah, maybe the Raptors can be competitive in Game 3, but this is probably a sweep. If not, it's definitely over in 5. And I guess the only good news for Kesty and I is that we were not the only ones saying that. We've got lots of good company and lots of bad, because basically the entire basketball world was saying that. Outside of Toronto, there wasn't anybody going, yeah, you know, the Raptors probably have a chance. And I'm kind of mad at myself for that, because in the back of my head, I'm going, man, there's just no way the Raptors are this bad. Like, I watched this team play this year. I watched enough games, and specifically, I watched the games between these two teams. And the Raptors played Cleveland so tough. And I talked about that a little bit, but I just didn't go for it. And in the back of my head, I'm going, Raptors are winning at least one of these games. I mean, I thought it was going to be over in five, but I thought it would be they get game three, then lose a really competitive game four. And instead, they blow Cleveland out of the water in game three. And they win a tight game four, withstanding a late comeback by the Cavaliers. They showed some mental toughness in this game that was so clearly absent in games one and two. This is impressive, man. What the Raptors have done, tie this series up. Do I think they're going to win? No. But it's not going to be a walkover. And there's no way that this should have been because the Raptors are a good basketball team. Are they one of the best conference finalists we've seen in the last 10 years? No, probably not. But they're not, they don't stink. Like, winning 56 games is no joke. That's a lot of basketball games. And Cleveland was playing at a level that was just, we're all going, man, if they play like this, they're going to win the championship. Well, no kidding. They were playing out of their skulls. Even for a talented team, like, the best teams in the league can occasionally even play above their level. And that's what was happening to Cleveland. A really, really good championship caliber basketball team that was playing even better than we thought it was capable of. That's not sustainable. And now here we are tied this series at 2-2. Last night was interesting in a couple of ways, and I'm looking at this more from the Cleveland perspective. Look, Toronto just played well. I don't really know what to tell you outside of they're playing hard. Lowry's flipped the switch. He's in attack mode. He's playing confidently. DeRozan is playing confidently. And they're hitting shots. And sometimes this game is that simple. They're getting good shots. They're getting rhythm shots. Um, you know, even some of the long threes that Lowry's hitting, he's stepping into them. And so they're good quality shots. But for Cleveland, like one, 
a couple. I, I want to talk about three things with Cleveland: a good LeBron, a bad LeBron, and then something Tyron Lue said in the post game that made me go, "Wait, what?" First, good LeBron, which leads into bad LeBron. Good LeBron. He had 29-9-6 last night. It didn't feel like he had an impact on the game at all. Like, LeBron's so freaking good that in a game where we're going, man, I just wish he'd be more aggressive and more assertive, he had 29 points, 9 rebounds, and 6 assists. He's the When he's trying, he's still the best player in basketball. Steph Curry is the best player because at his age, he's able to produce night after night in a way that LeBron isn't... I mean, I think some of it's just boredom for LeBron, honestly, at times too. But, like, LeBron isn't that as good as Steph every single night of the regular season. If you ask me whose best is better, LeBron's still the best player in basketball. Like, what LeBron's capable of on any given night is still the best player in basketball. And even on every given night... LeBron is still incredibly close to Steph Curry. He's disgustingly good. And so last night, you're begging him to take over. But I think LeBron realizes that this team, the Cavaliers, is so much better when everyone is going. And that they're unbeatable when everyone is going. So he's going to try and not go into what he did last year in the NBA Finals when Love and Kyrie are out where he's completely dominating the ball and pulling every single string. He'd rather let the system work of just moving the ball and, and trusting his teammates because he knows if, you know, up 2-1 in the series, even if it's tied at 2-2 going back to Cleveland, they're not anywhere close to a desperation mode yet. If LeBron goes into desperation mode, then maybe he goes into the survival mode that we saw in the playoffs last year or in the finals last year where he just goes, screw it, everything's going through me and I'll figure it out, and I'll take this brunt. Instead, last night he plays 46 minutes, doesn't feel like he's very assertive, and still puts up 29-9-6. and six. That's gross. But, at the same time, it should have been more. Late in the game specifically, they're running 1-3 pick-and-rolls, so meaning the 3-1 the, pick-and-rolls, where LeBron is the small forward, the three is handling the ball, and then Kyrie Irving sets a screen, and the Raptors were willingly switching, which seems like a really dumb idea. And sometimes they wouldn't even have to have, they would run one three pick and roll with Kyrie handling LeBron screening. And then LeBron would just seal off Kyle Lowry, who was guarding Kyrie, and then post him up. And it was more in the mid post than the low post. But still, if you're LeBron James and you're, you're clearly designing that switch, attack it. And it's, I don't think he did it once in the last... I mean, only one shot in the last five minutes. And they were getting that switch routinely. Now, apparently what the Cavs were trying to do, just based off watching, is get that switch, force a double team, and then try to get an open shot on, on a pass out and, an, and then, if you have to, a ball reversal. So if LeBron would kick out to the same side and then just whip the ball around faster than the defense can rotate... Then, then you'll live with that shot. And they got that a couple of times. But the Raptors' defense was locked in last night, and they scrambled well, and they got contests on these shots. And the Cavs' shooters weren't hitting. If you're LeBron and you've got Kyle Lowry, quit waiting for the double team. Because it wasn't immediate. It wasn't immediately on the pass. They're rushing the double team and going into scramble mode. Because they were waiting for LeBron to, to take a dribble or 
you know, just or on the catch or just where it's not that he's got to give it up immediately. He had room to operate if he just went. The Raptors weren't in some overworked rush. They were able to kind of defensively be in rhythm. And so if you're LeBron, you've got to realize that and you've got to just freaking go, man. And so for as great as LeBron is to go 29-9-6, and six, it should have been more. And his team needed more last night. They needed him to attack. But obviously, when you're looking at the blame pie of last night, it's hard to put a ton on LeBron because he was creating open looks for his teammates all night long and they weren't hitting. That includes Kyrie Irving, who was abysmal in the first half. He was better in the second half, but he got torched defensively by Kyle Lowry all night long. It's what I thought would happen in this series. I thought Lowry would be able to play Irving basically to a stalemate, if not play him off the freaking floor. He was wrecking Kyrie Irving. And then there's Kevin Love. Max player who can't find the floor in the fourth quarter. And when asked about it after the game, this is what Tyron Luce said. I thought Channing came in and gave us, gave us a great lift when we were down. And like I said, like last game, it's just, you know, to try to put Kevin back in with four minutes to go in the, in the fourth quarter, and, you know, in a, in a hostile game, hostile environment. It's not fair to him. So um, Channing gave us a great lift off the bench, and we just, we just kind of rolled with it. So let's rewind. Back to game three. Why didn't Kevin Love play in the fourth quarter? Um, Kevin missed some shots early. Um, wasn't it having anything to do with the fourth quarter. Channing started the fourth quarter, and it's just the way the flow of the game was going, and I didn't think it was fair to get him back in you know, with five minutes to go in the game when he's been sitting for so long. So it wasn't anything he did wrong. It was just, you know, I don't think it was fair to put him back in that situation. What I think is happening here is Tyron Lewis protecting Kevin Love. What he really is thinking is that he can't afford to have Kevin Love and his poor defense on the floor in the fourth quarter. Because if not, Ty Lue is admitting to being a dunce of a head coach. And I don't think Ty Lue, as inexperienced as he is, is a dunce of a head coach. I think that if you're going, hmm, I don't think it's fair to Kevin to come in cold with four or five minutes left in a ball game, that... You should get him in earlier. He's a max player. Get the, get your guy in. Come on. It's not that simple because Ty Lue doesn't want Kevin Love in. That's the point. It's not like Ty Lue can't figure that out. It's that when he looks at his best options, offensively, defensively, the ball is going to be in the hands of Kyrie Irving or LeBron James. And they'll probably run that 1-3 pick and roll. And then typically they have Tristan Thompson in, crashing the offensive glass. That was Lou's mistake last night, leaving Channing Fry in a little too long. You know, he wants to ride the hot hand, and Fry was amazing. But in the end, they get burned on the rebounding end. And Lou probably should have gone back to Thompson earlier. Easier to say in hindsight. I wasn't saying it at the time, so I'm not going to kill him for it. But... In hindsight, clearly that's the decision he would have made. But either way, Fry was a better offensive option. Thompson's a better defensive and rebounding option. Love doesn't fit. That can't happen for a max guy. <laughs> it's, it's pretty easy to, to see right through that. because And also, I mean, 
the way Lou said it, though, is, is really interesting. It's not fair to put Kevin back in with five minutes left in a hostile game in a hostile environment. It makes it sound like Love's mentally weak and can't handle it. Maybe he can't. Is that what Lou's trying to say? He's trying to sneak it by us? Like, yeah, if this game was at home, maybe i put Kevin back in. Is that what he's trying to say? Whatever it is, the reasoning's not good enough if you're Tyron Lue, if you're telling the truth. That's on you as a coach. Give it figured out. Tell Kevin with seven minutes left to go get on the bike and stay loose. So you're going to put him back in with four minutes left. Or put him in with six minutes left. Or play him an earlier part of the fourth quarter and sit him for the final couple of minutes. And to me, even if Love can't handle that situation or isn't your best option in the final five minutes when the game slows down, whatever, and you need your best defensive lineup out there, fine, play him earlier in the fourth quarter. That is a coaching mistake in my mind by Ty Lue. But what Ty Lue's saying screams cover-up to me, which is interesting for a guy who Cleveland just signed up for for five years. And if they don't win the finals will certainly be a a subject to trade rumors this summer. Let's talk more hoops now with this guy. They're putting the basketball in the hands of the best player. James on the attack. Almost nobody on the planet can do the things with a basketball that LeBron James can. High speed inside. NBA defenses tend to assume no one can pass all the way across the floor. Too many defenders. Too much distance. But LeBron has set up 55 corner threes while passing from the opposite side of the court this season alone. It's a crazy difficult pass that he executed multiple times this postseason, including the dagger three from Channing Fry to clinch the Eastern Conference semis. Gorgeous look from LeBron James. And this screaming bullet to Richard Jefferson. That's a special play. And that laser to Kevin Love. Kevin Love, off the pitch. LeBron's teammates are so open that they make the bucket 62.7% of the time they get one of these dimes. Bottom line, defenses have to recalibrate their help tendencies to account for LeBron's attack because he is willing and able to pass to the far corner from just about anywhere. Another assist for LeBron James. How about that pass? For True Hoop TV, I'm Tom Haberstroh. And Tom Haberstroh joins me now. ESPN.com, True Hoop TV. He also has a piece on Russell Westbrook's passing that is up right now on ESPN.com. You can also see those videos, I believe, Tom, on the jump, right, with Rachel Nichols? Yeah, on the jump, on SportsCenter. Uh, we've been really, really lucky that this this medium of telling stories numbers, uh, it's really caught hold. So I'm really, really excited. Rachel's been a huge fan of the true TV product, and as long as she's asking Craig, like, I'm just going to keep making them, because if Rachel <laughs> signs off, I mean, I must be doing something right. Yeah, no, that is high praise for sure. That is praise that you want, is that of Rachel Nichols. Um, just real quickly on those videos, and I mean, you do obviously a ton of things, almost everything you do is with numbers, and stuff you don't do with numbers is with science, making you much smarter than me, um, but... When when you look into like a numbers piece, whether it's for a full fleshed out written piece or a, a one minute video like that, how do you decide what numbers you're going to dive into and in research? Uh, well, it kind of jumps out. It's no different than a scout watching a game and you're noticing something that jumps out, uh, whether it's a guy making a move or a guy, uh, you know, rebounding at an extraordinary rate and just having a lot better intuition on how to get the ball. I mean, those things stand out. And in no different is it for me in a spreadsheet looking at numbers and saying, wow, 
that is interesting. Or that didn't, that, I just learned something there. And the interesting thing we have, we have this new sport beauty database where we can take a deep dive into all sorts of advanced analytics, which is just a fancy way of saying a new set of numbers that we never had before. And one of the things um, that makes me love my job so much is that I feel like I'm discovering something every day. Um, and I want to teach the world about it. I want to teach the world, the basketball world, about this really cool finding. So with the LeBron James thing, I'm watching the game, and I've been watching LeBron for many, many years. I covered him uh, here in Miami. And this cross-court passing, it's just, it, it, I remember watching and being like, I wonder if he does that more than anybody else. So I pulled up this tool, and sure enough, he has 55 cross-court, uh, cross-court passes to shooters in the corners, and there's more than any player in the NBA. And then you have this little link in the table that says watch a video. And that's the key here, Craig, is like, when I find these numbers, it works in both directions. I'll see it on the TV in the game, and then I'll go to my database. But other times, I'll see a number, and I don't quite believe it. And then I'll click on that link, watch the link, and it'll pull up magically. It's just like uh, one of the most amazing things about technology. I can see a number and then watch it come to life. And I watch a highlight reel of all the passes that LeBron makes, and then it becomes real. And then it's like, okay, when people hear stats, when people read my stuff, it often doesn't feel real. And that's what we're trying to do with this True TV series where we take, we find a number that tells a story that comes alive and it becomes much more vibrant with highlights. And that's what we're trying to do with LeBron and then Russell Westbrook. And we have a new one coming out today, which hopefully, uh, you know, Rachel loves. Yeah, no, everything everything that you guys have done so far is great. But as you just said, uh, you don't need me to tell you that because Rachel Nichols has told you that. Um, one that actually uh, Amino Hassan did was on the expected three-point percentage where the Cavs players were just shooting so extraordinarily higher, so much more extraordinarily higher than they had been throughout their careers and throughout this season from three earlier in these playoffs. So with that context of realizing that the three-point shooting was coming down, um, are you as surprised as everyone else that Toronto is back in this series 2-2? I mean, I think that we expected the shooting to come down, but not necessarily the series to even up. Right, so we talk about this all the time, Craig. Like uh, People who cover the game, the commentator Charles Barkley, Ted Legler, uh, whoever it is, the commentators always talk about how it's a make or miss week. And what they're really saying, Craig, is that sometimes you just get lucky. You know, sometimes a shot goes in and you play great defense and you lose the game because of that lucky shot that went in. And what Amin did, which is what is Matt, like really, really cool about this new data, is that the shots that were going in weren't better shots. If you're asking yourself, is this sustainable, you might say, okay, well, the shots that LeBron is creating for others is actually a much higher percentage shot than they did previously in the season. And so, yes, it is sustainable because something that they're doing is getting better looks, and it's not just luck. And what Amin showed is that it is a lot of luck, that they're hitting way above their norm, and actually the looks weren't any better. It was just that they're hitting them. And so one thing that we can learn with this new data with new sport new data is, is this real? Is what we're seeing sustainable? And that's, that was the big question after uh, the two games was, what is, is what we're seeing that just lighting the, the nets on fire? Is that going to continue? 
And that's stuff that is really hard to answer beyond some scrutiny. And so we looked at it, and sure enough, it wasn't sustainable in the sense that they were not getting better looks. It was just that they were going in more. So that is a surprise in the sense that I didn't see them losing uh, two in a row here. I didn't think that was going to happen because I just think that they're so much better than the Raptors. But if we've learned anything in this playoffs, Craig, momentum is a myth. It is a myth. It needs to die a fiery death because if we really believe that the the Cavs are, you know, had all this momentum, you would never have seen Game Three blowout. You would never have predicted the Game Four loss. If momentum was real, the, the San Antonio Spurs would have rolled against OKC after that Game One blowout, and OKC wouldn't even be in this in this uh, Western Conference Finals. If momentum was real, you know, the, the Golden State Warriors coming off the seventy three and nine season would just barrel through the playoffs. And what we're learning is. You have to look into the numbers to see if what we're seeing is sustainable, and a lot of the times it's a fluke, and that's what makes the playoffs so great. How real are home road splits? Because it seems like that, you know, basically in the Eastern Conference Series, everybody but LeBron James seems to be affected by what arena they're playing in. Um, and then in the West, too, I mean, you see and you see it all the time throughout the playoffs, and even in the regular season, role players typically just play better at home. That's what it seems like. Is that is that something in our own heads, or is that reality? No, home court advantage is a very real thing. Actually, last year I did this big deep dive investigative piece on why, for whatever reason, home court advantage had disappeared in the regular season. And referees weren't making certain calls that they typically had. Um, usually, when referees are in you know, the last five minutes of the game, clutch scenarios, they tend to call more fouls on the, home, on the away team. And that wasn't happening last year. Um, but so far this year, uh, the home court advantage is very real, and it's happening, and it's a very real thing. And there are a few reasons for that. One, um, people like sleeping in their own bed. I don't know about you, Craig, but I have a tougher time sleeping on the road. I like my, I like my bed that I have here in Miami. It's very comfy. I have the right pillows. I have the right blankets. And some people just it's, they can't sleep in hotels. And that's a very real thing that home court advantage captures. And also referees typically favor the you know they're human and they typically favor the late uh home team um and in general just like you know playing in front of a crowd you, you kind of it affects you it affects you in ways that we really can't really explain through science but yes home court advantage is a very real thing uh for a variety of reasons and despite last year kind of disappearing for a while it's back have you ever seen anything quite like Kyle Lowry's fluctuation in these playoffs? I mean, his down was multiple playoffs the past couple of years and then finally seemed to figure it out. Then it seemed to get away from him again. And the last two games, he's been incredible. Have you ever, you know, whether there's statistical things behind it that you've, you've already d- dived into or just from your own basketball memory, can you remember something like the ups and downs of Kyle Lowry? It's a great question. Um, I can't really think of it uh, because, you know, typically we see Kevin Durant in the finals, uh, LeBron James. These guys are metronomes. And what, as, as far as in 2011 when LeBron James wasn't playing well, he was just consistently not good. And it wasn't just this, like, huge, you know, variance like we're seeing with Kyle Lowry. But I, I think one of the things, Craig, that I'm getting myself more fluent in is mental health and mental um effect on performance and i think what you're seeing with kyle lowry is that he had to quote unquote decompress which is just another way of saying he was stressed out 
he kind of lost it a little bit. Yeah. And, and that is something that probably gets a lot more ridicule than, than he deserves. But it's also an important lesson in how important it is to get your mind right before you go out there. And if we're learning anything about Hackershack and all these things, it's that your mental uh, disposition or your mental confidence, uh, your mental... If you're having a lot of stress in your life uh, behind closed doors that we don't know about, maybe Kyle Lowry is dealing with something at home that we just don't know about that would cause these wild fluctuations. I can't think of anything off the top of my head where a guy would go like 0 for 7 in a game, shoot you know 1 for 15, and then come out and drop 35 points, um, and then go right back down. So no, the Kyle Lowry thing makes this, this series so much more interesting because he's such a good shot maker. He can look so great on one possession and on the next. He just looks like he doesn't know how to play. Yeah, and it's great to see him playing like this, too. I mean, he had a couple games against Cleveland in the regular season where he looked exactly like he did last night, and to see him back at this level has been a lot of fun. All right, uh, Tom Habershow is with me here on the Hoffman Show, one of the smartest guys, if you haven't been able to figure that out, that's covering the NBA. So, Tom, what I want to do with you is play smart or not smart as we flip over to Golden State and Oklahoma City. And I wrote about a couple of ideas yesterday that maybe the Warriors could be kicking around round to try to get back right in this series so i'll th- i got three things i'm going to throw at you want to tell me i want you to tell me whether you think they're smart or not smart uh, okay so one thing that they could consider after their death lineup which had been so dominant not just this year but for the past two years um got absolutely blitzed in game three is to try to not go small as much and keep, whether it's Festus Azili or Andrew Bogut, one of the bigs in the game for better rim protection. They gave up 62 points in the paint. It is not going small for Golden State. As counterintuitive as that sounds, actually possibly a smart thing for them to do against Oklahoma City. I'm going to lean towards not smart here, and I'll tell you why. Believe it or not, in Game 3, the Warriors got the highest quality looks in terms of their offense and how open their shots were of any game this postseason. Wow. The best quality looks that they've gotten all postseason long. And that tells me one thing. Those are going to fall. At some point, those are going to fall, and they're, the Warriors are going to look like the Warriors again. And so much of what we do is retroactive um, you know, diagnoses where we're saying – well, a lot of those shots didn't go in, so something needs to change. And maybe it's just it's a make-or-miss league. And a lot of those shots normally go in, they just didn't. And we're feeling like something radical needs to change. Uh, I think they better go. They, I think they're going to keep going small. Uh, it's it's paid them dividends all season long. And I think when you look at the Warriors, that's who they are. And I think they need to stick with their identity, uh, which is going small, have versatility move the ball, get back in transition, and I don't think they should stray from that. Um, all right, I'm going to guess you'll say not smart to this one too, and I think I would too, but at least it makes sense on some rational level. I think I would trust the Warriors more in a slower game than I would trust the Thunder. So even though it is counter to everything that they stand for, would the Warriors slowing it down so that the Thunder have to slow down be smart at all? I'm guessing based on your last answer, probably not. Actually, you know what? I think that's smart. I think um, okay. I think because of the ball movement, that ball finds energy. And I think when you get stuck in uh, a half-court game, that ball movement is so key to get open shots. And so I think, yes, Golden State, they are better when they're in transition. But I think in terms of advantages, I think they're much better than the OKC Thunder are at that 
half-court offense, if that makes any sense. They're better at half-court offense than OKC than they are better at transition game than OKC. So it's just a little bit of game theory, a little bit of a chess match here. But I do think their ball movement in the half-court, uh, if, they, if they commit to it, if they commit to it, um, they're going to be better off in the half-court than OKC. So I do think there is... Some intelligence in what you said. Not everything you're going to stick crack here is not smart. I promise. <laughs> I, I would hope not. And see, that's the one that actually, like, it makes sense to me that because I would trust not only that, but defensively too. I trust that Golden State's half court offense is going to make less mistakes than Oklahoma City's half court defense. And the same is true on the other end. If Oklahoma City has to run offense in the half court, I trust Golden State to execute defensively. But it's just so count. Like, it's one of those things where if you're Steve Kerr, are you considering throwing away your identity and losing your team because you all of a sudden are going away from the style that got you 73 wins well i think if you can convince the team that your identity is moving the ball um and quick decisions you can play with pace and eric spolster talks about this a lot in miami you can play with pace in the horizontal direction not necessarily the vertical direction Mm. so what i mean by that is you don't have to run up and down the floor to play with pace but like the spurs did in 2014 which is you get up the floor, move the ball, and by the time the third pass happens, the defense's head is spinning because of the pace of those movements, and you get open shots. And I think you can play to your identity in the half court, that kind of, um, you know, the ball finds energy, that idea. That is the Warriors' that identity. I think they can do that in court. All right, last one. Uh, keeping a bigger defender on Russell Westbrook the entire game, not even messing around with Steph Curry on him in an effort to keep him in front, uh, you know, keep a defender in front of him and have to take jump shots if he's going to try to shoot. And then obviously you can probably talk to how that would affect his passing as well um, with the research that you've done on that. Keeping a bigger defender and even maybe putting an Andre Iguodala um, on Russell Westbrook, smart or not smart? Um, you know, I think we're going to have to say not smart on here. Not because I don't think that idea is not smart, but I think the smarter idea is just to be super attentive to Russell Westbrook and have a guy in the paint as much as you can. And what that means is Andrew Vogut, when he's guarding Andre Robertson and shaking off of him, uh, just camp out of paint and make it harder for Russell Westbrook to get in there and force him to take more jumpers because that, I think, is the secret stopping Russell Westbrook is having him see those trees in the middle and not seeing that daylight. And so, yes, maybe a bigger defender, Craig, maybe a bigger defender will help that. But I think a bigger boost would be just having a big camping out in the paint and forcing. I know it's crazy. Robertson has looked much better. He looks like, uh, you know, Tabo Cephalosha out there where he can hit a reliable three-pointer. I don't know if that's sustainable, and I'd rather take my chances loading up in the paint and forcing him to shoot. Yeah, let's get a mean on a spreadsheet on that. Uh, Tom Habershow, you can read him on ESPN.com. Watch his work, True Hoop TV, on SportsCenter, The Jump, all over ESPN's platforms. Follow him on Twitter, at Tom Habershow. Tom, always great to catch up, my man. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on, Craig. Take it easy. Craig Hoffman. Mark Fainaruwada is an investigative reporter for ESPN's Outside the Lines, also author of League of Denial with his brother, Steve Fainaruwada. And uh, it, it's another episode in this, I mean, in the concussions in the NFL, Mark, that you guys put out yesterday. And, I mean, I think the most interesting thing that jumped out to me as I started to read this story the phrase, long-standing pattern of attempts by the league to influence science. 
at this point, 10 years, whatever, how many years, 10, 15 years into this concussion story, how different is the science of the league, quote unquote, versus independent science? Like, how much is the league still trying to spin this in their own way and calling it science? Well, I think that was one of the telling things, I think, for, for my brother and I as we were working on these, this story is, you know, if you look at the history of this issue, the, the league has the two decades worth of denial that, that you know, we laid out pretty clearly in our book and others have, have reported on extensively. And then, you know, when they, when they sort of scrapped their scientific committee that had been created in 1994, they scrapped that committee around 2010 and bring in a bunch of new folks. And there's a suggested commitment to, to the science of letting it go where it may. And you have even the new co-chairman of that committee. One of them is Richard Allen Bogan. The other is Hunt Badger saying that they're basically disregarding all the work that had been done by that previous committee and, and essentially saying we're going to clean things up. And, and now you fast forward essentially six years later, and this report is quite damning to those guys because it suggests effectively that they're doing what they were doing before in a, in a sort of aggressive way uh, uh, involving a government study. So you've got, you know, you've got sort of the congressional report laying out two particularly notable things. One is this sort of behind-the-scenes campaign waged by at least a half a dozen top health and safety officials with the league um, trying to uh, keep the NIH from giving uh, a grant to Bob Stern of Boston University, a prominent researcher who has been sort of at the forefront of some of this research around brain damage in football, um, but also been critical of the league. Um, And then at the same time, you have at least one other top health and safety official going to the NIH and after the NFL decides they're not going to fund Rob Stern's study, um, trying to essentially redirect that money to NFL researchers. So um, I think in many ways that's why, you know, as we talk to Congressman Pallone for this story, I think that's one of the reasons they used the language that they did, because this to them reflected a sort of repeat of the kinds of behavior that the NFL had been engaging in previously. Uh, as you read the story that Mark wrote, you'll find that, that the word bias a lot coming up from the league in terms of what they think of Dr. Bob Stern, the BU doctor who was awarded uh, the rights to do this study, the grant to do this study. Um, what I didn't remember seeing in the story um, is what they think he is biased against. Is the NFL's bias against Robert Stern simply that he found stuff that was unflattering to them? Do they have any other <laughs> grounds of bias that they're alleging? Yeah, well, their, their complaint, one of the complaints that they say they expressed, although they, they're sort of unclear about exactly when they issue their statements about what they did or didn't say, but, but in the report, it's clear that they, one of the complaints that they have about Stern is that he had filed an affidavit uh, in the NFL concussion lawsuit, the lawsuit in which thousands of former players are suing the NFL, um, he had filed an affidavit suggesting that the the settlement was in uh, inadequate and that it would not uh, support a lot of retired players. That the money was inadequate and that many guys who were suffering would not be covered. Um, and so there was a suggestion from several of the NFL doctors that um, they believed that this was inappropriate. So, bottom line, in the interest of fairness, do you think the NFL has any legitimate gripe with Dr. Stern being awarded this grant um, based on bias or what they thought was going, you know, some of the, the specific science and where he specializes versus some of the other doctors that were in play were specializing? Does the NFL have any legitimate 
ground to stand on for backing out of this? Well, there's two, there's two pieces to this. One is that, that in terms of whether the, the argument itself is legitimate or not, um, you know, the NIH uh, has a very thorough review process uh, that they actually took to another step once the NFL raised these issues. And, um, and the, the NIH uh, ruled that there was actually no ground to, to consider that Stern or any of the many other scientists who would be working on this would, would have any issues with bias. Um, but the larger piece of this from, from the congressional investigative standpoint is that is the suggestion that the NFL's behavior in this was inappropriate, that the, the route in which they took to go, the, to go this way was problematic on several fronts. One, you know, when they gave $30 million to the NIH in 2012, they said their gift was unrestricted. They signed a contract with the NIH, which specifically laid out the, the, the terms in which the deal would, would play out. And one of those terms, of, uh, which, was, which was quite important to the NIH because it's part of their policies, is that there would be no influence by the donor, this case the NFL, that the people who would be determining who's doing the research would be the NIH. And, in fact, you know, we used a quote in our TV piece from Roger Goodell, a commissioner, saying, look, of course, you don't tell the NIH how to do the research. You just let them do what they're going to do. These are the best scientists in the world. But, in fact, the report lays out how the NFL did exactly the opposite of that. And so the, the problem, I think, from the congressional investigator standpoint was not only that there was a belief from NIH that the argument was unfounded, but that the, the league actually despite having a signed contract that they were going to abide the $16 million commitments for the research that was described, uh, backed out of that, and then uh, uh, unduly tried to force the NIH to change their, uh, their approval process. And by the way, um, the, who, the people who stood to benefit from uh, Bob Stern not ending up with that grant were several NFL-connected doctors who also had put in for the same grant. It just seems so obviously that it's wrong and corrupt. It's it's kind of amazing that the NFL like thinks they can get away with this. Um, I'll get back to the signed agreement in a second, but just real quick, kind of wrapping up some of the NFL's gripes. Um, they seem to not like the peer review process of the NIH, the National Institute of Health. Um, I, th- I was actually watching, I think it was two weeks ago at this point, John Oliver's piece on scientific studies. And he says that a lot of these studies that get quoted on, on your morning news programs are not peer reviewed. And that's an awful way to go about a scientific study. Um, and, and so the, the peer review nature of scientific studies has kind of been, uh, under scrutiny, I guess, lately with that. Um, and something the NIH, when they're going to do a study at the government level, is very, very in favor of and is an essential part of their process that the NFL doesn't like. Why is the NFL so against this incredibly important part of the scientific process? Well, I don't know that we, I mean, it's funny, I saw that Oliver piece the other day, and it was pretty powerful. I, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that the NFL's complaint so much is that they, they don't like the NIH's process. I think they just didn't like that they came up with with Stern, at least that's how it reads in the congressional report, and that's how our reporting plays out. Um, you know, I mean, Roger Goodell's on the record saying, you know, you don't you don't challenge the NIH. This is the best scientists in the world, and we're going to let them go through the process and decide who needs to to uh, to get awarded money. And this is a rigorous process. I think the NFL's contention is that they went through appropriate channels to raise questions about Stern. Um, the congressional report did not agree with that. The NIH did not agree with that, and I guess it's up to everybody to decide who they want to believe on that front. In terms of that signed agreement, the NFL had pledged $16 million to this and has not paid it. 
and it seems like based on your reporting the way I read it um, in this congressional report that they they don't plan on paying it but there was a signed contract is there any legal recourse against the NFL for that I, I don't I don't imagine that, that anybody's raising I, I haven't heard that anybody's raising sort of legal questions about it I think you know the the NIH is hope and, and some of the emails we did report on this it, it's sort of down in the bottom of the report and it's it's another sort of piece that's not we didn't get into, but you know the, the the NIH wants to move forward. The NFL has not said they're not they're they're uh, they haven't given an indication that they're not going to honor the the rest of the money. Um, Twelve million of their thirty million has been spent on research, and um, you know there were email exchanges between the NIH and the NFL about moving forward with next studies and what would be done. Um, you know, it's it's just a weird thing. I don't think the NIH really, uh, based on the email, they know what to make of this because one of the NFL's complaints and, and emails was, we really think we need a longitudinal study that's going to determine the prevalence of, of this disease. <clears throat> and so that's what we're looking for. That's what we should spend this next $16 million on. And the NIH is like, I don't understand what you guys are talking about. This is the study you agreed to. This is the longitudinal study we all talked about. So... Uh, I think there's some confusion there, uh, whether it's, uh, for what reason, I don't, I don't think, I wouldn't speculate. Um, you know, the NIH, in one of its emails, suggested that the next research should be around youth. Um, whether the NFL seemed to balk at that, at least because they wanted a longitudinal study. Um, so I think there's ongoing negotiations around what's going to happen with that money, but I don't think the NIH has decided yet how it's going to spend it. Um, an interesting quote uh, around that same point, the piece at the bottom there uh, from Congressman Pallone said, you know, when, basically about the league, when you catch them doing something wrong, that's when they start to change. So with that in mind and kind of what you just said, I know you said you don't want to speculate too much, but if you had to give your best guess of what you think happens with the league, the study and the 16 million, now that this is all out in the public, do you think that changes anything and this eventually goes forward the way the NIH wants it to? I mean, I, you know, you would imagine so, but I think it's anybody's guess. I don't think people anticipated, you know, the NIH, I think, while they weren't completely shocked by what happened, I think that they, you know, there's a there's a statement from one of the top NIH officials saying this was unprecedented. He'd never had an experience like this with a donor trying to influence a study. So, you know, what happens moving forward, I, I don't think anybody knows. But, you know, as I said, I, I, there's, no, there's been a suggestion that the league is not going to honor its commitment. Um, I think now the question is going to be how does that other, um, you know, there's $18 million left essentially of the $30 million. How does that other $30, $18 million get spent? When does it get spent? Is there agreement? Um, and then what happens uh, as the grant process moves forward if, if there's a, a group that gets awarded that the league has issues with? Last question for you, Mark. When you put out a report like this, do you and Steve hear from players and what are they saying? You know, we didn't. I saw a lot of responses from players on Twitter who are appreciative of the work and or, you know, more more pointedly raising questions about the league. I think that's what you see repeatedly um, either on our, you know, on our network. There was a lot of hostility and, and criticism of the league, um, both from players and coaches um, and former coaches. Um, but uh, we haven't, I haven't seen anything in this particular. We'll, we'll get emails occasionally from, from players who are appreciative of the, set and the stories. But I think most pointedly, and what's most interesting, is seeing players going public and talking about their concerns about, about what this means and saying they just want true answers. And I, I think that's really what the reality is at this point. Players just want 
the answers. They're going to make the judgments they want to make, but they just want to know very directly um, what to expect. And, and, you know, I think there's clearly, because of what's happened over decades and then this, there's clearly some trust issues. Yeah, as there should be um, with what's happened. Uh, the work is spectacular. Uh, you can read it on ESPN.com, and the, the accompanying TV piece was very good as well. Uh, I'll put a link to it on, on the bottom of the site here, HoffmanShow.com, below the podcast. Uh, Mark, always appreciate it. Uh, good to catch up, and uh, you and Steve keep putting out the, the good work that you are, and hopefully we'll find some truth here shortly down the road, and, and the NFL will figure out what they're going to do with this study and can keep moving forward and, and protect the players. Thanks so much, Craig. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, um, it's really my pleasure and time. Call it a wrap. Call it a wrap today with – Really, what will probably turn into some level of a rant. It's one of my favorite rants. And favorite uh, in terms of how often I have to come back to it. Not favorite in that I have to come back to it. Charges in the NBA, and I've written about this. I wrote about this extensively a couple weeks ago. Um, It's not just in the NBA. It's in basketball in general. Um, Drive me insane because people don't understand how they work. And really, I'm going to rephrase here, and maybe, just maybe, some people will learn something by listening to this. And I'm not even really going to reference the rules as much as coaching points when it comes to basketball. And instead of charges, let's talk about defensive positioning. How it's taught, and how that then goes into the rules. Because last night, the key play that everyone wanted to talk about this on was the Bismack Biombo block on LeBron James that was correctly called a foul late in the first half. James goes up for an alley-oop on a beautiful backdoor cut, and Biombo, to his credit, man, he made a heck of an attempt. Comes out of nowhere, flies in, meets James at the summit, gets all ball at the top, and their bodies crash into each other, and that is why it's a foul. It's not a hard call for an official at all. In that particular situation, as Biombo jumps into James, he's got to not make contact with the body at all, get the ball clearly first before any body contact happens, which didn't happen. Body contact actually came first. It wasn't even close. And then, uh, the only other way around that is if there is body contact to not have a foul on Biombo, is if he's stationary and then jumps straight up with verticality. Why that exists is this, about defensive positioning. I can sum up all of the problems and fix all of the problems everybody has understanding what is a charge and not in basketball with this simple concept. Defense in basketball is about getting there first. Not in a race, but stationary. It's not a race to a spot because that's not fast enough for a defense. You need to be there first so that when an offensive player is there, like you need to have a house built. You don't need to buy the land. Like You need to have your house built. You need to be standing there stationary ready to do something. And this is why I wish they would change the block charge rule to basically you have to be trying on defense to draw a charge. And if an offensive player blows through you, then yeah. 
So there's a call earlier in that first half where Damari Carroll slides in, and he almost gets there. But he's clearly trying to just draw a charge. And he goes, and then he gets tapped by LeBron. And, I mean, getting tapped by LeBron is going to make you fall over. But he definitely embellishes. It's a flop. And they correctly call a block. And I love that. Because I don't want to encourage defenders to fall over. I want to encourage defenders to defend. And that's why, look, I'll applaud Biombo because he wasn't trying to draw a charge. He goes and he tries to meet James at the summit. And he just didn't get there in time. And sometimes that happens. It doesn't mean it's an awful call. Oh, rah, 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 rah. Oh, it drives me insane. And Van Gundy and Mark Jackson are going nuts on the broadcast. And Mike Brain's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's a body foul. And Brain's right. And if Jeff Van Gundy is coaching Bismack Biombo in film session, he's saying, don't be late. That's the solution. Don't be late to your spot. The best defenders in basketball, and I was listening to uh, to J.J. Reddick's podcast yesterday, and he had Stan Van Gundy on, and it was great. Highly recommend listening. But Stan was talking about how the best defenders in the league, there's like maybe three or four lockdown guys, like Kawhi Leonard. Okay, you put him on an island, he can shut down someone. But really what you're looking for in great defenders in the NBA and what makes a great defender is understanding positioning and getting there in time. And a guy like J.J. Redick, well, you're not going to necessarily want him against a premier offensive player in an ISO situation. J.J. gets to his spots. And it's something he learned from Stan while they were both in Orlando. It's why those Orlando teams were really good defensively. They had veteran guys, or in like Reddick's case, a younger guy who just learned quickly, that you've got to be in your spots. And Stan was talking about his current team in Detroit where a guy like Contavious Caldwell-Pope or Stanley Johnson, who just finished up his rookie year, they're pretty good on an island, but they're late all the time in rotations. And he was talking about Stanley Johnson in particular, a kid who's 19 years old, who, while, again, a great one-on-one defender, hurt their team defensively because he just wasn't in the right spots fast enough. And that causes problems in the NBA because your defense has to work on a string. Everyone's got to be in their spots. And so last night on this play, it's a pick-and-roll high. James rolls to the basket. He was the screener. And Biombo comes over late as a help defender, and they meet in the air. And you can't do that. If Biombo had been able to fly by LeBron and knock the ball out cleanly, then yeah, that's not a foul. It's a clean block, but that's not what happened. And this happens way too much in the NBA. And when you're trying to judge whether it's a block or a charge, you should look who was there established first. And if the answer is not clearly the defensive player, then it's a block. The offensive player can be moving. And if they kind of move into each other, that means it's a defensive foul. That's how that works. You've got to be there in a way to defend. And it doesn't necessarily have to be completely stationary for the defender, but you've got to be in a legal guarding position. And in the air, moving forward, jumping into someone like Biombo was, is in a legal guarding position. Sliding and then falling over, like Demara Carroll did, is not a legal guarding position. In your stance, moving to a spot, you get there first, and you're trying to play defense, keep a guy in front, or go for a swipe on a steal, or go for a block, and just getting plowed through, yeah, that's an offensive foul. 
Think of it that way. An offensive foul, something the offensive player has to do illegally in terms of contact. Last thing I want to talk about real quick, an idea that spawned from a text exchange I was having, or text and tweet exchange I was having last night with Chris Kroger from WFNZ down in Charlotte, previous Hoffman Show guest. And Chris tweeted that Kevin Love hasn't done anything to earn the name of star or the title of star. And I somewhat disagree on that. Some of the numbers he put up early in his career were pretty astonishing numbers. I mean, he had 20 and 15 in one season and 26 and 13 in another. Like those are pretty amazing numbers, even if they're on a bad team. And Chris was saying, well, you know, the rebounding stats and some of the point stats, they may be a little inflated. And he had teammates that maybe thought he was inflating his stats at their expense. And that is certainly valid criticism. And I think that happens in the NBA a lot more than we'd like to think it does. But Kevin Love's a really good basketball player. But as we talked about off the top in the first segment, defensively, he's not good. And defensively, Kyrie Irving is really not good at times. Like, abysmal at times. And Kyle Lowry's taking advantage of that quite nicely in these last couple of games. But we were kind of talking about that and and some of the other big threes that have been assembled, LeBron, Wade, and Bosch in Miami, you know, Duncan Parker, Ginobili, the Lakers had their big threes with Kobe, Powell, and either Bynum or Lamar Odom, um, you know, depending on the year when they were really good. Obviously, the Celtics' big three back in 08 that won the title. So, like, all these different big threes, and we said that this one is probably the worst. And Kyrie, and, and it's because of Kyrie and Love. Kyrie is the most incomplete second banana. Guys like Wade, you know, Parker in his prime, Obviously, Paul Pierce, if you're saying KG was the one in that big three. You know, they were two-way players. And even the third guy, a lot of times, is a two-way player as well. uh, Much better than Kevin Love was. And that's why Chris was saying he just doesn't trust this big three. And he said something that jarred me. Chris said, LeBron can't hitch his title hopes to those two. He knows that. The irony in that statement is astounding because that's exactly what LeBron James did in leaving Miami to go back to Cleveland and then demanding the trade for Kevin Love. We forget often, because he never wound up playing there, that Andrew Wiggins was a member of the Cavs after Cleveland got the number one pick, and that's how Kevin Love got to Cleveland. They could have just kept Andrew Wiggins, but LeBron is thinking Love is more ready to win now. Wiggins is going to be a rookie and and super young, basically, until my career's over. And I think I'm better off with Kevin Love. I still don't think that was the right move. I said it at the time. I think they were better off keeping Andrew Wiggins and LeBron teaching him the ways of the league, basically, and just turning him into a defensive monster would have taken so much defensive pressure off of LeBron. But instead, they make the move for Love, and here we are, and LeBron's got to, at least at times, be thinking, man, I don't know if I can trust this dude. I don't want to overreact, because Kevin Love's still really good. 
And up until the last two games in these playoffs, he's been spectacular. He's a really, really talented rebounder. And that has some value on the defensive end. Offensively, he can do things that most guys his size can't do. He's got to hit shots. And he's not going to be this bad the rest of the series. He's been awful the last two games. But in terms of playing championship-level basketball on both ends of the floor, I think there's got to be times when LeBron goes, man, I wonder if that's the right guy. And obviously it'll be interesting after the season if the Cavs as an organization go, I don't know if that's the right guy. And they make some moves if they don't win the title in LeBron's year two. All right, thanks to Mark Fainer-Ruwada and Tom Haberstroh for joining me. Thank you, as always, for listening. Subscribe on iTunes with the button to the right if you're listening on the blog. If you're already listening on iTunes, thanks very much. This is The Hoffman Show. I'm Craig Hoffman. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.